Hey, Chloe. Hey, Raf. How are you going? I'm freaking awesome. How are you? Ah, I'm awesome. Also, isn't it good to be awesome? Yeah, it's great to talk to you. Yeah, I'm looking. I'm looking forward to this. Um, loving, loving uh, all the feedback we've been receiving from our earlier episodes and the the support we're getting out there from from not only our our BE circle but the wider Pilates movement stratosphere is is really um, exciting to me. Mm. You know what's really exciting to me is, um, well, basically this is the, this is just a phone conversation that you and I pretty much have every week anyway. So now we just record yeah. it, and then other people can listen to it, and that someone some of them seem to enjoy it. So that's awesome. Yeah, it's really cool. And actually, a few people have been like, "How did this happen?" I'm like, just so everyone knows that's listening, this is not scripted. We don't know what we're going to talk about until we jump on a call together. We've got a list of things we'd love to talk about, but this is this has really been born from the the conversations that Raf and I have, you know, in private and offline, and you know, bringing bringing them bringing them out, putting them out there. I guess. Mm. Yeah. So what what do you want to talk about today, anyway? So what I want to talk about today is empowering um, movement for our prenatal clients, um, dispelling some of the myths around um, movement during during healthy healthy pregnancies, um, and also dispelling some of the myths um, around movement in the postpartum period, particularly around abdominal separation and abdominal strengthening exercises in both prenatal and postpartum. Mm. Wow. Juicy topic? Yeah. Super. Yeah. So, Super. so, yeah, so, so uh, set it up mm. for me. So uh, the reason I want to talk about this is both you and I are very, very confident in, in the guidelines and in the, the whys and the whats and, you know, what, what we can do and, you know, what the things we, we should avoid um, specifically in regards to the national guidelines. Um, but it seems that it, it's one of those things that really is perpetuated out there and sometimes by teachers, absolutely, and a lot of the time um, by fear from from our clients, um, potentially what they've heard from other healthcare providers or maybe what they've heard from friends or family or, you know, my sister couldn't do this during her pregnancy, therefore I can't. Um, and yeah, it, it, it does come up a lot for, for teachers, for both experienced teachers and for newer teachers. And it can be kind of hard to know what to do and what to say, you know, in, in those circumstances. So that's why I think it's really important to have this conversation. And also this could be a really empowering conversation for uh, someone who is pregnant to listen to. Because mm. there is a there is a lot of fear, like you say, um, mm. in the air. Uh, in, it's in the water supply, I think, um, around mm. pregnancy and exercise and yeah. um yeah and uh it's it's it doesn't need to be the case it doesn't need to be the case and 
I often like we, you know, you did this wonderful interview with with Sarah Hark, who is a a leading um, women's health physio who educates around the world on um, women's health, and you know, it really resonated with me when she's like, "Women are, are warriors," you know, not warriors warriors you know they're they're strong what they need to go through in you know birth is you know a a big deal we want you you strong and and you know ready to do that we don't want to baby you throughout throughout your your prenatal journey and look I'm going to be the first I I think both of us can put our hands up and say neither of us have been pregnant or given birth to a child true um you know, I'm sure you've probably ex- experienced that more with having, you know, <laughs> had a wife who <laughs> was pregnant and then you've got a daughter. But, you know, I, I haven't. So I don't want to sit here and, and I would just really want to put my hand up first to say that I haven't gone through it physiologically myself. I think that's important to say. Um, however, I have had a lot of clients who I've seen from from, you know, conception through to birth and then had them through the postpartum journey as well. Um, and I feel I'm, I'm well-versed on, on, the, on the clinical guidelines um, so I can talk to that and, and talk through the, the teacher experience. Mm. So I guess let's start out by thinking about maybe, you know, where this, where this fear comes from mm. and... I think, um, you know, you, you might have some different views, I don't know, but I think, you know, there's there's definitely uh, a, a natural kind of, uh, I guess, you know, care or, or additional kind of sensitivity to risk, I guess might be another way of putting it, that happens during pregnancy. You know, women, you know, mm. are more fastidious about what they eat, you know, the you know, like they they just become kind of sensitized, um, mm. and and I I know this from observing Jules, my wife, when she was pregnant, but also just from there's research that you know they bring pregnant women into the into the lab and they prick them with pins and squeeze them with tweezers and put hot things on their arms and stick their hands in ice buckets and ask them how much it all hurts, and then they do the same with non-pregnant women of the same age, and they find out that the pregnant women are. are basically just generally more sensitive to Mm -hmm. stuff, you know, like, uh, and, you know, I don't think that'll come as a great surprise to anyone who's ever been pregnant. Um, And so, you know, and it kind of physiologically, it's plausible that, you know, when you're pregnant, there is increased increased risk, you know, because you're, you have a second life on board and you're more, uh, so the, 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 if there was, if anything bad was to happen, you know, the, the, the downside is that much bigger than if it's just you. So it kind of, mm-hmm. you know, is plausible and I think, you know, entirely normal for women to feel a bit more, I guess, you know, protective or guarded or, or you know, anxious or self-preserving or, you know, some mm. combination of those things in pregnancy. And I think that's probably a... A you know ten million year old instinct mm. that mm. Yeah, you know, totally. is very normal. To- ab- absolutely, and you know I hear some of the you know the getting pregnant journeys of of my clients or friends or loved ones, and you know sometimes it can be a long journey, and yeah, there's a there's a lot a lot 
a around. lot riding it. on it. Yeah, a lot riding on it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So absolutely. So there's there's that going on. There's that, um, as we know, more of a, a generalized pain sensitivity yeah. at times, um, and that's well documented, isn't it? That there you can have more pain points. During pregnancy, would that be the yes, right well, way to I, describe that? I think that? Uh, the research that I've seen is basically that um, it's it's a height, uh, heightened sensitivity. So basically, right. things that would normally hurt a little bit, you know, hurt a bit more. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's it's basically you know anything that would irritate you as a non-pregnant person just is that much more irritating when you're pregnant. Mm. And are there more? Is there more prevalence of generalized, non-specific back pain? I know we've got, you know, the generalised, you can get pelvic girdle pain during pregnancy. That's Yeah, back pain, low back pain is more prevalent in, in during pregnancy than outside of pregnancy. Uh-huh. And not correlate, doesn't correlate with, with an injury. No. But it is correlating with this, this. Widespread tissue hypersensitivity. Yeah. Right, right. Okay. So, so someone could be feeling, a, 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 a prenatal person could be feeling more, hyper-tuned to their body, to pain potentially. Yeah, and I think yeah. that's that's a normal, you know, part of the physiology of pregnancy. You know, I don't right. think that's a, I don't think that's psychological or anything like yeah. that. I think it's just, you know. Hmm. Okay. So I think, you know, the first thing maybe we could dispel is is some of the prenatal elephants in the room in regards to exercise. Yeah. Oh, all right. Well, where, so, do you, where do you want to start? <laughs> where do you want to start? So, so <laughs> it's funny because <laughs> the name of our podcast, Pilates Elephants, I feel, Raph, really came from, you know, a couple of um, things that you and I started doing in our, when we were back doing our face-to-face training, when we started to realize all of these, these myths that abound. Um, and we did, we did Pilates elephants and we would do prenatal elephants. Yeah. So prenatal elephants, I would stand out in front of my students, the whiteboard, and I'd literally just throw it to the room and go, okay, guys, so tell me, what have you heard about exercising when pregnant? And let's just like, there's no right or wrong answers here. Like, I just want to, I just want to hear what you've heard. Let's just get it all out. <laughs> get it out of your system, you know, get it out. It's no longer than the elephant in the room, right? Which is really quite cathartic to do. So, you know, okay, where do we start? Mm, definitely don't. So I think what we should do, Raf, is just let's get, let's get these all out and then let's zoom in. Okay. Yeah? So let's get some, let's get some, let's throw some elephants at the board here. I'm going with... No abdominal strengthening exercises. Okay. I'm going to throw in uh, no no end range stretching or splits. Yeah. No no adduction work. Mm. So no inner thigh work. Yep. What else? Oh, don't do something new. Exercise once. Mm, not a great if time to start exercise. It's not, not a good time to start exercising. But if you're going to exercise, you're only allowed to do what you were doing mm-hmm. before you became pregnant. I'm going to throw what in uh, exercise uh, for prenatal women should be super gentle and should basically involve lying back over a bolster whilst breathing deeply. Absolutely. You should only do transversus abdominis activation exercises. Yeah. And basically you should be propped up 
you know, every every limb should be on at least two layers of cushions. <laughs> Definitely don't elevate your heart rate. No cardio for you, um, unless it's just some gentle walking. Um, Mm, I have heard don't do any side-lying feet-in straps work on the reformer <laughs> because of, quote-unquote, pelvic instability. Oh, yeah. All right, well, let's just say pelvic instability then. Let's I'm going to throw that pelvic, in. Yeah, let's, yeah let's, let's throw pelvic instability at the whiteboard. And uh-huh. slash relaxin. Oh, definitely, definitely relaxin, yeah, yeah, because relaxin, remember, only affects – your pelvis, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, there's air quotes, guys, air quotes. Um, 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 um. Well, it's a good place to start. Yeah, I think, I think that's Should we throw – maybe I'll throw – while we're throwing things at the board, I'll throw in postpartum and go definitely don't do any abdominal strengthening if you've got abdominal separation. And particularly abdominal crunches or curls. Is going to make it worse. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cool, great, okay. <laughs> I have to really be mindful of my tone of voice. <laughs> I haven't quite mastered that yet. Sorry, guys, I'm used to people seeing my face. Um, okay, excellent. So there, there's some elephants. Now, I'm also going to put my hand up and say that at varying points in my career and in my journey with my understanding of um, what is okay and isn't okay, pre and postpartum, um, is I have said a lot of those things to clients. Mm. Uh, can I add one more, which is like yeah. a super obvious one that we none of neither of us thought enough, which is cueing pelvic floor. Cueing, pe- yeah. Through, yeah, throw, through it, pregnant, on, throw through, it in there. Through pregnancy, yeah. Throw it in there. All right, consider it thrown. Consider, consider that pelvic floor thrown at the whiteboard. Okay, cool. Where do we go from here? So from here, I guess what I would normally do with the journey with my students is I would actually go, okay, cool, excellent, heard all of those things. What if I told you now these were the national guidelines? Mm. Well, what are the national? Well, when we say national guidelines, we're actually talking about the American College of Sports Medicine, although they're very, very similar to, for instance, the American College of, uh, sorry, Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, and they're, Uh you know, parallel guidelines in Australia and other, uh-huh. you know, industrialised economies. So, but basically the guidelines that we use uh, when we teach at the American College of Sports Medicine and they're the yeah. current, uh, the current uh, 2018 release guidelines that we're, we're working through. Uh-huh, exactly. And ACOG, if you go onto ACOG, um, their website, they more often than not link into ACSM. I was on there recently and they were, they were quoting the ACSM guidelines. Yeah which I thought was freaking awesome. And uh, just like uh, for basically all of your uh, exercise kind of prescription questions, you know, if you're out there thinking like, oh, what what's the best exercise for someone with Parkinson's disease or heart failure or low back pain or an older adult or osteoporosis or low back pain or whatever, the American College of Sports Medicine puts out a book uh, called the – ACSM's guidelines for exercise testing and prescription and the current edition which I have in my hand here is the 10th edition mm-hmm. um, published 2018 mm-hmm. and uh, it's oh, paper copies about 45 bucks 
if you if you're lucky, you'll find a PDF copy on the internet for about half that. You know, a, le- a legal PDF copy, and um, fantastic book. And it just basically mm-hmm. is your, you know, gold standard uh, sort of definition of best practice when giving exercise to any of those particular groups of people. And it was in fact mm. the the textbook in my master's degree in exercise physiology. And it, it's a standard textbook in most, mm-hmm. you know, master's level exercise science, exercise physiology courses. It's just mm-hmm. the de facto world. And physio, world physiotherapy. Standard. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes. Yeah, guys, I highly recommend getting this, you know, and you don't have to be teaching clinical Pilates to own this book. Own this book. It's it's yeah, fantastic. Awesome. It's it's an awesome read. Um, you know, I've got I've got little tabs all through it. I've got yellow highlighter all through it. It's just yeah, it's brilliant. Mm. Okay, so, so yeah, let's let's go through what the guidelines are. Let's go through the guidelines. So guidelines are really very simple in regards to um, prenatal and being mindful that what we're talking about here is we're talking about. A healthy pregnancy, mm. right? Well, can can I um can I read something from the guidelines? Please. This is from page one ninety five of ACSM's uh, present guidelines heading heading pregnancy. Mm. Healthy pregnant women without exercise contraindications, which are listed a little bit below, are encouraged to exercise throughout pregnancy. Not only are the health benefits of exercise during pregnancy well recognised, but also the short and long-term risks associated with sedentary behaviour are of increasing concern. Um, and so I think what there, there are a couple of things uh, I'd like to think about in that paragraph. And one is that it says healthy pregnant women without contraindications are encouraged to exercise throughout pregnancy. So that means like from day one to the day you give birth, that there is no time in pregnancy when it's not a good plan to exercise mm-hmm. if, uh, if you don't have contraindications. Um, so, and, and that's kind of a myth that we, I think we didn't mention in the elephant section, but I think it's worth it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and also that it says not only are the health benefits of exercise well recognised, but the short and long-term risks associated with sedentary mm. behaviour. And, and so I think, you know, like we have this notion that, you know, exercise uh, can be risky and particularly so in pregnancy. But and, and that is true. Like if you run a marathon or even if you just run 10 kilometers, like you have a greater risk of having a heart attack during that run than if you were sitting on the couch for that that two hours or three hours or whatever. But if you run 10 kilometers regularly over your life, you have a way lower risk of having a heart attack than if you sit on the couch the whole time. So the the momentary risk goes up during exertion. You know, like if you if you do weightlifting, you have a higher risk of pulling a muscle whilst you're weightlifting than you do whilst you're lying on the couch. Being on the lounge. Right? Yeah, yeah. But if you do weightlifting regularly, you have a lower risk of pulling a muscle than if you sit on the couch all the time because you your body is more robust and resilient mm-hmm. and you can tolerate that load. And so mm-hmm. what what so that's kind of a, a part one of the of the myth that exercise is dangerous. Um, but also in what they mention here in this paragraph is that the the risks of sedentary behaviour are, are of increasing concern. And what and like so what could be the risks of sitting on the couch? Well you know, what's the number one, two, and three cause of death in the Western world? Cancer, heart disease, and stroke. 
Mm. Right. And, and, you know, followed closely by obesity, diabetes, high blood pressure, you know, like we could list a, 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 a litany of lifestyle, mm. you know, preventable diseases that are all inversely related to how much you exercise. So in other words, the more exercise you do, the less likely you are to die of heart disease, stroke, cancer, diabetes, uh -huh. etc. Et so the risks of not exercising it turns out, are much greater than the risks of exercising. Because yes, whilst you exercise, you you know transiently increase your risk of having a heart attack or tripping over and breaking your arm or pulling the calf muscles or something. But if you habitually don't exercise, you actually double your risk of having a heart attack, which is the statistically the thing that's actually probably going to kill you. Mm. Um, and if you double your risk of that in any 10-year period, like that's a significant increase in risk mm. yeah so i think that's absolutely yeah. absolutely and you know and for those at home wondering what the contraindications are well we won't go into it hugely but you know they're they're, they're significant you know and and the doctor would have would have would be monitoring that right Right, Ralph? It's yeah, not the these client like, that comes to us for the group class. These are like people with hemodynamically significant heart disease or uncontrolled diabetes or uh, uncontrolled seizure disorders or uncontrolled mm. hypertension. You know, like these are people with serious medical conditions, not mm. someone with a bit of a sore back or a cold or something like that. Mm. Mm. Exactly, exactly. Um and what I loved in there is then if we, we go forward and we go on to exercise prescription on page 197, I think that's worth – do you want to do a little read of that, Ralph? I reckon – I'd like to hear you read it, Chloe. Oh, you like to hear me read it? Okay. <laughs> My turn. So <laughs> exercise prescription is basically in the absence of obstetric or medical complications, the exercise recommendations during pregnancy are consistent with recommendations for healthy adults. Accumulation of at least 150 minutes per week of moderate intensity aerobic exercise – or 75 minutes per week of vigorous intensity aerobic exercise spread across most days of the week for pregnant women should be modified according to the women's prior exercise history as well as symptoms and discomfort, um, et cetera. So just like anyone who's – if it's someone who's just starting exercise, well, we'd be doing the same thing, right? Exactly we'd right. Be, we'd be building them up due to deconditioning. And yeah, I, th so. I, th I think also what you said at the end there is really important that it says – uh, exercise prescription for pregnant women should be modified according to the woman's prior exercise history, as well as symptoms, discomforts, and abilities across the time course of pregnancy, which which essentially says that, you know, the fact that you're pregnant is less important to the exercise prescription than how fit you are. So if you're super CrossFit mum, you know, you can do super CrossFit pregnancy exercises. Mm -hmm. And if you're beginner sedentary mum, will you get to do beginner level pre, you know, pregnancy mm. exercises. And so the fact that you're pregnant is not the most salient you know, factor no. when choosing the intensity of the exercise. Exactly, exactly. And then the next paragraph goes on to say, research on the effects of resistance exercise during pregnancy is limited, but shows that compared to sedentary controls, resistance training either has no effect 
or produces better outcome, e.g. lower incidence of lower back pain, shorter labour durations, shorter recovery time slash faster return to activity postpartum. Well, that says to me, let's do some resistance training as well, hey? Mm, sounds great. Let's get out those little one kilo dumbbells and sit on a fitball. <laughs> oh, sorry, that's not what you meant by resistance training? <laughs> Rough. I just threw you at the whiteboard. <laughs> <laughs> but could we could we put Pilates in there as some resistance training? Yeah. yeah. Good idea. Totally. Totally. Cool. So, funnily enough, at the moment, and these again are the ACSM guidelines for exercise testing and prescription for women who are at a low risk, a low risk pregnancy, well, it's all sounding a lot like the healthy exercise prescription for your general population, isn't it? Yeah. Right. Excellent. Okay. So, we've determined that they need the same things <laughs> as everyone else, but I, I, there's going to be some considerations, yeah? I think there's a – I think it's worth just noting here that there's, I think, like the fundamental misconception that is prevalent amongst most people people, sadly, including most health professionals, mm -hmm. is that there is some special or different form of exercise for, for people with different medical conditions or, you know, health issues or, you know, pain syndromes or injuries. And that somehow, you know, like you need a different form of exercise if you're or a different dose of exercise even, if you're pregnant compared to if you're not pregnant, or if you've got back pain compared to if you not have back pain, or if you've mm -hmm. got a sore shoulder compared to, or if you've got diabetes or whatever. And the mm -hmm. fact is that, you know, humans have evolved over millions of years, and our physiology is, is such that we thrive with some mm -hmm. optimal, you know, amount of and type of exercise, which is mm -hmm. basically, you know, what the guidelines recommend, um, you know, minimum of 150 minutes a week of moderate intensity cardio, which is like brisk walking or equivalent, mm. you know, where you're slightly out of breath. Or or if you run twice as fast, you can go half as long and get the same benefit and do two or three resistance training sessions a week. And when you do that, there, there is, you know, at a cellular level, mm. you know, a whole bunch of stuff happens in your body that basically makes everything better. It makes your digestion work better, makes your brain work better, co you know, cognitive mm. function improves, uh, our emotional mm. health improves, mental mm. health improves, circulation mm. improves, blood pressure mm. improves, uh, mm. you know, physical function improves, mm. cardiovascular joint health. <laughs> joint health. Like just think of yes. any physical Everything. parameter, it yeah. gets better, or in mental parameter, it gets mm. better with exercise. And these are not just not just limited to musculoskeletal things. Like your mm. digestive mm. system system functions better when you exercise mm. regularly. Your brain functions better. Mm. Your liver functions better when you exercise regularly. Oh, Raf, you're making me want to go for a run. That was very motivational. <laughs> um, actually, like, and and it's so true. And and I and I'm someone that knows all this. And then, you know, can easily get out of habit. And the moment I actually, you know, go and, and do that or, or go and do that run, even though I might not be feeling, you know, overly motivated to do it, but I know all these things, I'm like, just do it, Chloe. Oh, my God. Literally tick, 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 everything. I'm, I'm smiling halfway through right. my run because so, <laughs> I'm feeling freaking awesome. Right. And um, it's, the same, it's the same if you're feeling, you know, 
bit flat or depressed or anxious or whatever. It's like, go for a run, go for a walk, go do a Pilates class. Like, you're going to yeah. feel better at the end, you know. Yeah. And, and you know, people know this from their own experience. Yeah. But it's, it's so, you know, basically mm. whatever ails you, you know, mm. your body mm. is still your body and your physiology is still your physiology. Mm. And, you know, it's going to be, the, you know, the same things like, Mm. It's the same with diet, right? Eat more veggies, less less processed foods. Well, if you've got cancer, is that different? No. If you're mm. pregnant, is that different? No. <laughs> you mm. know, like if you're a weightlifter, is that different? No. <laughs> you mm. know, so it's there's not a special sort of exercise mm. regimen for pregnant women or for people no. with diabetes or for it's just like no, you just it's the same because we're all humans and we all have the same physiology. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I, ab- absolutely. And and I mean, there is, when we think about exercise considerations, though, absolutely, there will be some. And I think, you know, when we're, we're talking about, you know, there's this, there's this broad sort of umbrella of what's good for everyone. There are some circumstances where we need to zoom in, like, you know, I'm thinking post-surgery ACL rehab and things like that. Like, there's sometimes where there's some protocols, right? Or, you know, Osteoporosis, low bone mineral density reading, avoid loaded flexion. You know what I mean. But for the for, so so sometimes there are considerations, and it's really good to know those. Um, so I think that's what we can also empower our 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 teachers and our clients um, to know. And they're often they're really simple. Right. They're not complex, and there's not this huge list and it's you know like it's i, I would it's say uh, yeah it's a, you know even stronger than that i would say that you know the default assumption should be that basically everyone needs the same sort of thing yeah. and that there are a few exceptions where we need yes. to you know it, make adjustments or sometimes av- yeah, yeah or avoid <laughs> certain <laughs> positions or, or whatever it might be right yeah, but the, but yeah. that your default assumption should be mm-hmm. yeah this exercise is probably safe for everyone let's go and then you know rather than your default assumption being like oh i've never learned about exercise for you know 72 year old you know asian females with osteoporosis so i don't know what to do with this person it's like your default assumption should be well there's a human in front of me so probably moving is going to be a good plan and mm-hmm. you know there might be one or two you know minor adjustments we need to make to the program based right. on the fact that this person's got a certain set of situations going on but but the default should be let's get them moving absolutely and and you know for our for our you know i'd say the bulk of our listeners being um group i'm going to assume and this is an assumption i don't know please let me know i'd love to know who is listening <laughs> um, it'd be great to great to hear from you all um but yeah the bulk you know a lot of our listeners will be working in the group Pilates setting, mm-hmm. okay? And in the group Pilates setting, if someone's coming you to, you know, and they're good to take part in a group setting, well, the assumption is let's get you moving. Right. 
reassurance advice to stay active let's let's do this yeah and so if you know if you're in a group exercise setting including a group pilates setting well you know assuming that you've got a a proper screening protocol in in place where someone Mm -hmm. comes into your studio or into your classes or whatever and you know before they participate they fill in a form that says you know Mm -hmm. do you have any health conditions etc assuming Mm -hmm. that you've got that happening well Mm -hmm. you know all of the high risk people are not in the room correct right so anybody who's in the room is is good to go spot on spot on so i think that's a good segue into okay so we've we've got all the the prenatal elephants out there now (laughs) and we have you know talked about the 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 general the general guidelines so now we need to sort of zoom in on a couple of special considerations that we do take into account with our prenatal client. Mm-hmm. Okay, I think it. I think it was good. And and for some of our listeners, particularly those who haven't gone through our teacher training, because in our teacher training you absolutely do learn the these guidelines. Um, but for those who haven't, and and I've spoken to a lot of these teachers out in my broader community they're actually not aware of these guidelines yeah. and they are adding in a lot of those other elephants yeah. <laughs> unnecessarily well, I, yeah. and freaking clients out and probably freaking themselves out as well. I, I think people, you know, people, a lot of people, most people, and I was in this situation too up until just a few years ago, you know, a lot of people aren't aware that there's such a thing as guidelines. And, and basically, mm. you know, I think a lot of people don't understand or don't understand that like, guidelines are something put together by a large group of scientists based on a very broad body of evidence. Mm-hmm. And, and and most people, I think, or many people, I, I imagine, basically are taught a certain method. You know, they've gone to prenatal training with some particular mm-hmm. teacher or school or something, mm-hmm. and they've been given some set of rules, you know, or mm-hmm. things to avoid or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, in some cases, quite an arbitrary set of things um, mm-hmm. that without any particular scientific backing mm-hmm. that are just kind of like commonly held beliefs. And mm-hmm. but, but a lot of people, I think, don't understand the difference between, you know, XYZ teachers' list of prenatal guidelines versus actual the ACSM's list of exercise guidelines, which is put together by 100 people, literally 100 people with PhDs, sitting in a room for three years and reading every single scientific paper written on the topic <laughs> and then synthesizing them into a set of evidence-based guidelines as opposed to someone who, you know, learned something from their teacher. Um, and so spot, I, on, yeah. spot on, Raph, spot, spot on. And it's one of the things that frustrates me most about the Pilates bubble and the, and the Pilates bubble seeking. And, we, you know, I've, we've heard it from grads of ours that have felt – like now they want to go and do a pre yeah. prenatal course and postpartum. And it's like, no, we're going to go through the guidelines now and there isn't more. Like yeah. there isn't more. The, this is it. And and what I see and this is what, you know, it frustrates me and, and it saddens me because it doesn't elevate health literacy and it does nothing actually to take fear away from prenatal clients or postpartum clients is these these prenatal Pilates courses that 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 you know uh, revolve in this bubble that are just put together by Joe Blow, 
um, with a list of things that actually have nothing to do with any scientific guideline and are all around, for God's sakes, don't don't do any adductor work because what oh, your pelvis somebody. is yeah. going to pop out or something due to relaxin. Well, in that case, then I better not lift my arm above my head because yeah. what about the relaxin that's in my shoulders as well? Yeah. Like there's no critical thinking going on and there's no loop back to actual evidence. Right. And and I'd really, I know I'm sort of going, sorry. No, no. Sorry, this is when I get on my, so this is, I'm a bit passionate about this because. Really? <laughs> Ralph, I probably have like, I'd love to say that I don't have this conversation with a grad or a teacher out in the stratosphere more than once a week, but it is more than once yeah, a week. And too. I kind of want to, if we could put it to bed, it I'd freaking love to put it to bed. And I know when I said to you, I want to talk about this, I was going to keep calm. And now here I am all worked up. <laughs> well, <I laughs> please think- stop breaking your clients out and please stop creating these nonsensical prenatal and postpartum Pilates courses. I'm sorry. I think, you know, (laughs) one of the kind of – I'll step down. Probably a key warning sign that you could look look for if you're out there and thinking like, well, who can I trust when it comes to, you know, Uh prenatal guidelines is that, well, if, you know – in this case, like if, if if you're making a set of guidelines and saying, okay, here's what you should and shouldn't do for women who are pregnant when doing Pilates, and well, in that case, if you're saying something like, well, you know, you shouldn't you shouldn't do adductor work because of pelvic instability, or you shouldn't, mm. uh, you know, do abdominal strengthening because of abdominal separation, right? Well, you're making claims about how the world works. You know, you're making yeah. a claim that if you do adductor work, that could make your pelvis more unstable and cause a problem, right? That's the claim that you're making. And so uh-huh. when you're making claims about reality, like, you know, people making claims, it's it's incumbent upon them to provide mm-hmm. proof, you know, evidence you for those the claims. You know. of proof. Uh-huh. Right. And so if and so it and so it is the case that there is an objective reality to that situation. Like, you know, doing a ductor work either does or doesn't, you know, exacerbate pelvic instability in pregnant in pregnancy, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, there is an objective reality out there. Mm-hmm. And so if if your teacher or, you know, course provider is saying something like, well, in our system, we do this for pregnant women, run a fucking mile because that is like that is like saying, "Oh, you've got your truth, and I've got my truth." You know. Yeah, that like, is that is not science. It is not best practice. It is not evidence based, and there's it's not critical reasoning. No, like <laughs> it, it, there because because there you know there, it's a physical reality out there. You know, there's mm. an actual physical universe, right? And women's bodies mm. um, obey the laws of physics, <laughs> and mm-hmm. you know, so it can't be the case. That if I'm doing Pilates method Z, my body's going to mm. obey one set of rules. But if I'm doing yoga, my body's going to obey a different set of rules and therefore mm. different rules apply, right? Mm. I'm a physical mm. human being, you know, there's going to mm. be some optimal set of mm. guidelines, right? And that that should be an objective, you know, mm. you know um, empirical question not mm. someone's opinion or we're all right and you've got your truth and I've got my truth mm. you know so so mm. we if we if we're all doing the best thing by our clients we should all be giving them the same basic advice right mm. which and 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 this is what it keeps go- coming down to too and this is what I'm 
adamant when I when I talk with my students, like our Breathe EDU students, you are not learning the Breathe EDU way. You are learning current best practice. Right. And everyone in the health stratosphere should be adhering to current best practice, not their own way of doing things. Right. Like if you, if just say you, you know, you had some, you know, a broken bone and you went to the hospital, the emergency room, and the doctor there said, you know, oh, we'll, we'll treat you. And you said, okay, what are you going to do, doc? And the doc said, well, What's you know, your way of doing my, this, my teacher, my teacher taught me that we should, you know, wind it three times with tape anti-clockwise, you know, but only under the full moon, you know, and the other doctors, they go, no, no, no. Well, my teacher told me that, you know, we should wind Have the tape, always wind the tape clockwise, you know, it should never be anti-clockwise. Um, yeah. It's like, no, that doesn't happen in medicine because yeah. all doctors, regardless of which medical school they go to learn yeah. the same fucking thing because yeah. that's what works right yeah, yeah. they learn yeah, that, the way that, that, that works broken best bone's probably going to go in a cast and it's going to be let to <laughs> right <laughs> regardless of which hospital you go weeks. to and which doctor you see you should receive the same standard of care uh-huh. right and of course there are variations but that's due to like you know inefficient bureaucratic inefficiencies or Correct. you know resource limitations or whatever but Correct. but no one no medical schools are training you, you know, to 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 splint a broken arm using tape. You know, they they're all training you to do it the best possible known way according to current research, and that's the way it should be in every right. profession. You know, and if you're a Pilates instructor, it doesn't make you immune to reality. Like we have to use the best possible, <laughs> you know, information. Oh my god, it's so true. It seems to though, doesn't it? It's really. Fascinating. Um, but I mean, we can, you know, you can, anyone who hasn't listened to our podcast on the brain is a liar. I think that's a, that's a good one, good yeah. one to, to, to listen to if you haven't, haven't listened back to that one. All so, right. okay. All so right. I think what we horse. need to do, Raph, yeah. off our hobby. Yeah. <laughs> We've been needing to get this out for oh, a while though, God. haven't we? I don't, I'm feeling better. How are you feeling, Raph? Yeah, I'm, st- I'm still a bit fired up. Oh, you're a bit fired up. I'm feeling quite like it's been quite a cathartic thing for me, actually. Uh, I've like, still got some oh, I feel Let's... like my crystals have been recharged. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> won't even have to put them out under the full moon this time. Um, so, <laughs> air quotes. So, Ralph, really, we, we need to <laughs> – I think we've sort of said all that, but we still yeah. haven't said, okay, look, there are some special considerations. Yeah, there are. There that are. we need to adhere by. So, let's so run through like quick. To, yeah, how about you go over those? All right. So I think there are like five of them or four yep. that you really, you know, like if you read five. if you read the details, there's a couple more, but most of them don't apply to yeah. Pilates, you know. Yeah. Um, so number one is after uh, week, fi- from week 15 onwards, is it? I haven't got the book in front after of me. After 16 weeks. From six, 16 so weeks. After 15 weeks. So from week 16 onwards, um, which is basically this, you know, a little bit into second trimester, no supine exercise. So no exercise lying on your back. Uh, and that is because uh, the uh, in some women, in some situations, the fetus and the uterus can uh, uh, sit on top of the vena cava, which is the main vein that returns blood from the legs and the, the pelvis and the abdomen up to the heart. Um, mm-hmm. And it can kind of squish the vena cava and prevent um, you know some or all of the blood from the vena cava from returning to the heart, which basically means the heart's got no blood to pump, which could be a pretty problematic 
scenario. So, um, and that doesn't, you know, that is not a problem for many women. Like there are lots of women I've talked to who say they sleep on their backs all night, you know, right up until week 40 um, and they're perfectly fine. Um, but for some women, it's it's not okay. And uh, mm. they, they experience, you know, quite significant symptoms very quickly when they lie on their back. Mm-hmm. And so the guideline is, um, you know, just a blanket rule of no supine mm. exercise from week 16 onwards. Yeah, and I think it's important there to say too that they may not experience any symptom as well. Laying flat on their back doesn't mean something might not, like something might be, you know, they, <laughs> that that vena cover might be being squished. So I think, um, you know, the, the studies, it, it was really interesting. I tried to find some studies on this and funnily enough, not many pregnant women want to put their hands up yeah. for a live, a live, yeah, let's see how long it's going to take for me to lay on my back before, you know, I cause harm to either my my unborn baby or myself. Um, but there, there was one interesting study that I came across um, where they had um, pregnant women they and, and they were totally awake but they were, and they were third trimester, so heavily pregnant, and they were laying um, flat on their backs in supine for 30 minutes and they had everything, you know, all the monitors and whatnot attached and um, – what they found and whether – who knows, you know, what it meant from a conclusion point of view. It probably meant further studies are needed, um, <laughs> further high-quality studies are needed. But basically what they found at the 30-minute mark is the quote-unquote, the fetus was going into what they said was a protective kind of mode and the woman had no idea anything was going on, like no symptoms, no nothing. There are also um, – there's also been quite a lot of research done that has shown that – um, unfortunately, um, there is a higher prevalence of stillbirths in women that have slept flat on their backs throughout pregnancy. That's <laughs> other research I've come across. So, the conclusion with that is we just apply the ACSM guidelines of special considerations that from 16 weeks onwards, no supine. So we prop we prop them. It's pretty simple. So you know, if you're thinking like, what do we do in a in a um, Pilates application? Well, if we're thinking something like footwork, you can prop um, your prenatal client up on a jump board. Is usually pretty comfy. Or do or it side a bolster. Lying. You can do it side lying. You know, if you're doing um, you're thinking a mat class and you're doing some rollbacks or you know what what not, you can have some sort of prop bolster etc. under um, your client's upper back. Simple ways you can yeah. you can prop to avoid supine. Hmm. Easy. Next one. Um, uh, the next one is avoid breath holding and isometric prolonged isometrics, and uh, that is that's uh, throughout pregnancy, and that is uh, basically breath holding is essentially the valsalva maneuver when you go <gasps> when you go to lift up something heavy um, or mm-hmm. you know do a squat or push up or whatever. Um, and so when you when you breath hold or do an isometric uh, exercise like a plank or something, um, you increase your blood pressure. And when you stop doing the exercise, all of a sudden your blood pressure decreases rapidly. And in pregnancy, most women have decreased blood pressure anyway. Mm. So your blood pressure can drop precipitously, you know, too far, too fast, mm-hmm. and um, people can faint, which, you know, is not the end of the world if you're doing side-lying leg work, but uh, could be a big problem if you're doing lunges on a reformer. Mm, or standing, you know, 
some sort of standing work or yeah. on the reformer. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, yeah. so um, yeah, so basically no breath holding, no isometrics. And so the, the solve for that is real easy. Just breathe through it, you know, don't hold breath. Just breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and don't hold your plank. Or yeah, so if you're doing, you know, it. like, and, and push push in and like move the arms or move the legs or yeah. whatnot. Or, or go, yeah. you know, down dog to plank to down dog to plank, you know, just like move between positions yeah. rather than holding a static position. Correct. Uh, awesome. What the heck's number three, did you say? Um, re- reduce risk of falling or be uh, mindful yeah, of activities yeah. that could increase risk of falling. Or trauma to um, the or fetus. Yeah, which mm. I think is is pretty obvious. Yeah. Um, and also, and, and I've loved a lot of my um, preggy, preggy clients and students have said it's also, you know, your centre of gravity kind of changes mm. as your, mm. as your belly heads forward. Mm. So um, they've found where they used to feel quite, you know, balance doing certain things. They're like, whoa, this feels really different now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe don't do the kneeling, you know, front rowing on the reformer, you know, mm-hmm. sit cross-legged or sit straddling a box or, you know, so thinking of it like that. Yeah. And probably don't play um, like touch footy or. Yeah, yeah. Go sk- like skydiving. Con- contact or, sports. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no yeah. And scuba diving, you know, like goes scuba diving either apparently because yeah, of the when pressure or something because of pressure yeah yeah there you go um, and um keep cool and hydrated yeah and i you know i think that one's like it's worth mentioning an honorable mention but i think you know if you're thinking about working out you know lying down in an air-conditioned Pilates studio, it's like, yeah, you're probably not going to get that hot. But, like, if you teach hot Pilates, like, that's not a preg- yeah. pregnancy-friendly uh, situation. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. Um, and then it's just the individual comfort of the human yeah. being in front of you. Yeah. Right? And so that's like and and so what are all the, what are some of the things we didn't mention because I want to come back to comfort in a sec but like so mm-hmm. what we didn't mention are like inversions and the reason we didn't mention it is because there's no mention of eating the guidelines and so inversions are not contraindicated you can just do inversions as much as you want no problem but totally some women might not feel comfortable like if you're 9 months pregnant you might not want to do a shoulder stand mm. you know or you might want to. I mean, gosh, I've got yogi friends who are doing all sorts of like pretty much standing upside down on their right. balancing on their nose right. up to, you know, the week before they pop. So right. again, it's really also it's like you crossfit mum or you're this or that. What have you been, you know, what are you what are your physical capabilities? Right. That, and it com- comes down to comfort yeah. and, and fitness level. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um and there are some women who probably won't want to do like a you know, half rollback or something, but some women would be totally mm. fine with it, you know. So um, it just comes back to comfort. Uh, what else didn't we mention? We didn't mention don't stretch, don't do splits, don't do adductor mm. work. Why didn't we mention Can that? Because it's not a guideline. It's not even a it's thing. It's not a guideline. And I think, Raph, I think this is, and I, and I know today's podcast is probably a little longer than some of our other episodes, but I think that's because this is such a juicy topic. We could and do a 10-part series, I reckon. We I, we could, and I'm I'm really enjoying this, and I think this this will be a really uh, valuable episode um, for a lot of people. Mm. I would like. Can we talk about relaxing because that is one of the yeah. the most yeah. common things, and it is also um, something that's not quite cool. understood too well by our clients. You know, right. our clients might be fearful. Yeah. Well, you know, jump in when I start going on because. Okay. You know. <laughs> 
Um, so, you know, most most people listening to this probably have heard of relaxin and are aware that it's a hormone that's released uh, right from the start of pregnancy in first trimester, that um, it has several functions in the body. And one of its main functions is to, it binds to receptors on ligaments in your body. So ligaments are just, uh, they connect bone to bone. Um, so basically every place you have a joint, you have ligaments around that joint that hold the, the two or more bones of the joint sort of, you know, in position together and stop them, you know, going too far in any particular direction. And so uh, relaxin binds to receptors on all of your ligaments and uh, triggers a cascade of chemical changes inside the ligament, which result in the ligament basically relaxing. You know, they become, your ligaments become a bit softer. Yeah. Um, and so they become a little bit more stretchable. Usually ligaments are not very stretchable. They're usually mm. they're kind of rigid, like a seat belt is rigid. Like yeah. if you pull on it when it reaches the end of its travel, it doesn't kind of stretch much. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when they've got some relaxin uh, on them, uh, they just become just a little bit more, you know, not a lot more. They don't become like a rubber band or anything. They become like a, a seat belt with like 1% elastine in it or something like that, you know, like mm-hmm. just a little bit stretchable. Um, and the purpose of that is thought to be to allow the woman's pelvis to kind of, uh, you know, articulate, you know, the, the joints in the pelvis to move a little bit more than usual uh, for childbirth, you know, because we have these children with fucking huge heads that have to, you know, travel through the birth canal. And uh, so, you know, having a woman's pelvis able to sort of like squidge a bit is you know, a good thing. So we have relaxin and that makes your pelvic joints relax, but it makes all of your joints relax, you know. So you, it, yes. it, all ligaments in your body have receptors for relax, uh, for relaxin. Uh, and, you know, so it makes all of your ligaments a bit more relaxed. Um, and so the common uh, sort of misbelief is that, uh, therefore, this causes something called, quote, pelvic instability, unquote, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which, you know, which is a horrible nocebic, uh, you know, image that of, you know, your pelvis snapping in half or something. Um, and uh, that therefore you shouldn't do any ad- adductor work like side splits or squeezing a fitness circle between your knees or any kind of lunges or front splits or anything like that, or even deep stretches of, you know, legs apart stretches, sorts of things, mm. uh, because that can, you know, quote, you know, destabilize, end quote, your pelvis. Mm. Um, And, yeah, so there's been a bunch of research conducted on this notion, um, and it turns out to not be the case. So um, Mm. relaxin is a real thing. Um, It's definitely released in pregnancy. It definitely does increase the laxity of joints. You know, it it makes joints more Mm -hmm. movable. And so that's a real thing. Um, Mm -hmm. um, And people do have pelvic pain in pregnancy. Mm. So women do get pain in their symphysis pubis. They get pain in their sacroiliac mm-hmm. joint. They get pain in their mm-hmm. low back um, in pregnancy more often than when they're not pregnant. Yep. Um, so both of these things are true, uh, but it turns out that they're not 
probably related to each other. So mm-hmm. just, at it, just as it is also the case that, you know, certain women are blonde and certain women have low back pain, but it turns out to be the case that those things are just not related to each other either. So in the same way, the relaxant and the, and the pelvic pain don't seem to be related. So we do we know this from studies. We're just basically, we give pregnant women blood tests mm. and figure out how much relaxant they've got in their system. Then we ask them how much pain they've got. And guess what? It turns out that there's no correlation between how much relaxant the woman has and how much pain the woman has. Right. You know. So when, when we think about pel- pelvic instability, because let's be honest, that languaging is rife in particularly the Pilates stratosphere. Yeah. Yeah. And we've already spoken about in other episodes. Can, that can I just perhaps- say that like the word instability needs to be struck off our vocabulary as Pilates instructor. Do not use that word, please. Totally. Totally. Like it is, it's, 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 it's just hideous. Like it is such a nocebic word. So what I'd like to do, Raf, is um, if you can remember, and I'm sure you can pull up this study faster than I can, but there's that really fantastic study where they- Which one? um, I've got several. Okay. So it's, it's the one on, um, pelvic girdle pain and it was the client yeah i know i know it's the, it was it was the, the participants that had um persisting pel- pelvic girdle pain right and they were looking at you know you know the next route was was surgery and what they did was they inserted the the, yeah, the markers yeah, yeah. into one. their yeah. could could you go yeah. through that one and actually the the degree of what there was in actual shift between yeah I, that that one yeah so uh, this was a great study um, yeah th- uh, basically they got these women who had uh, pregnancy related pelvic girdle pain and they were diagnosed with pelvic and SI joint instability um, and they got these women and you know God knows how they got them to volunteer to do this and they got ethical approval for it but basically what they did was they did a minor surgery on each of the women and surgically implanted radio-opaque markers into their pelvis mm-hmm. into their bony landmarks mm-hmm. so basically lead thumbtacks into wow. their ASIS their PSIS and their you know whatever other bony landmarks and presumably not their symphysis pubis um, and then they got them you know after the surgery they presumably gave them a couple of days to recover and whatever and then they got them to stand in a radio stereometric fluoroscopic x-ray machine so that's a big mouthful but basically what it is it's a stereo x-ray so it's like a 3d x-ray where two x-ray machines at you know angles um mm-hmm. both x-ray and it's like a x-ray video so it's like it's not just a still picture of an x-ray it's actually a, a moving video x-ray that is three-dimensional and so what they did was they got these women to stand on one leg in in the fluoroscopic stereo x-ray machine and hold the other leg up it's called a stork test like s-t-o-r-k yeah. you know like the, the yep. bird the stork stands on one leg mm-hmm. um, and it's a it's a very common test of si joint you know quote dysfunction unquote um, and it's thought to be the case that you know the si joint is most mobile when you stand on one leg and so what they did was they measured the degree of rotation of the innominate, which is the, the the half of the pelvis, relative to the sacrum. So in other words, they measured the movement at the sacroiliac joint for mm-hmm. each of these women um, in you know using stereo X-ray, but of radio opaque markers. So this was like a highly precise measurement. 
you know, mm. um, of these of these uh, women. And what they found was that the the average movement of the sacroiliac joint was less than half of one degree, like it was 0.2 degrees. Wow. 0.2. Like if you think about that in context, a complete circle is 360 degrees. Mm-hmm. Like you've probably got about 120 or 130 degrees of movement at flexion at your hip joint. You've got mm-hmm. 180 degrees of flexion at your shoulder joint. And you know, your finger, each of your finger joints can flex mm-hmm. about, you know, 90 or 100 degrees. Okay. Mm-hmm. Your sacroiliac joint moves 0.2 degrees. And what was even more fascinating in this particular study was these were women with diagnosed pelvic instability, sacroiliac joint instability, post-pregnancy pelvic pain. The movement was the same on both sides, the painful side and the non-painful side. So so these women, you know, to reiterate, these women had real pain. They weren't imagining it. They weren't making it up. Mm-hmm. They weren't malingering. They had pain very is real, always real. Right. They had very real pain, but they didn't have pelvic instability. Mm. 0.2 degrees. That basically doesn't fucking move. 0.2. Mm. Like, you know, if you're on your car, if you're in your car driving along the Autobahn in Germany at 250 kilometers per hour, mm. right, in your BMW 9 series, right? Mm. And you turn the steering wheel 0.2 degrees to the left, right? Mm. Five minutes later, you will still be in the center of your lane, right? Mm. It, that is basically zero, right? Mm. The, the sacroiliac joint fucking doesn't move, people. Mm. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't move. And, and was it, was it Mosley who, was it Mosley who basically said, you know, he, he, he's talked to talked to doctors and whatnot, and you know, people who've been hit by cars. The one thing that's still intact is the <laughs> sacroiliac joint. And look, we're not saying that you know you can't have an accident and it doesn't. You know, car accident doesn't. We're not. But this is you know, like it's really, really strong. Yeah, right. It's incredibly strong. It's surrounded it's incredibly by like heaps strong. of really strong ligaments. But this narrative that it's unstable mm. and that, you know, women have pelvic instability is insidious and it causes nocebo, um, which is, as we know, very real detrimental effect to that person's health. Stop it. Stop saying it, Pilates teachers. Freaking stop it. Mm. <laughs> stop it. And if I see it in one more of these prenatal and I'm doing I am doing the inverted co- commas here little courses if I see that crap in there well I'm like I'm no longer I'm no longer silent like yeah. do better do better course educators do better and, you better and, stop freaking people out. And I'm going to link to that study in the show notes. It's called a radiostereometric analysis of movement of the sacroiliac joints during the standing yeah. hip flexion test. It's from uh, Sturison et al. Uh, in the year 2000 from the journal Spine. Um, mm. Yeah, and there there is a bunch more literature on this. So what I will say though is mm. that there is some indication that there's a relationship between uh, there's no relationship between how much movement there is at the sacroiliac joint and pelvic pain. There's mm-hmm. no relationship between relaxin and pelvic pain, but mm-hmm. there is some relationship between asymmetrical movement at the sacroiliac joint and pelvic pain, um, but that's not explained by relaxin. And so there is, you know, like so many other 
situations in the body, like, for instance, disc bulge, like uh, FAI in the hip, like uh, shoulder uh, rotator cuff tears, like there's there's a very high prevalence of pain-free people, which when you look at them on the scan, you know, they've got some kind of thing wrong with them. But there's all there's there's a, also some a slightly higher prevalence of people who have pain who have that thing wrong. So so I, you know, I think to be you know to add a little bit of nuance to this uh, conversation, um, I think it is important to say that to acknowledge that you know whilst absolutely there's there's no you know, I'm not aware of any study that's found a significant relationship between relaxant levels during pregnancy and pelvic pain. I'm not aware of any study that's found a relationship between uh, pelvic laxity and pelvic pain during pregnancy. But there is a study, which I'm aware of, which has found a relationship between asymmetrical pelvic movement and pelvic pain during pregnancy. So when one side of the pelvis moves more or less than the other, um, that does seem to be associated, at least in this one study. So I think, uh, you know, I guess, you know, what I draw from that is that it's not completely, utterly and totally irrelevant, you know, the the movement of the sacroiliac joint, but that it is a very relatively unimportant part of the, the picture and, and one that's not understood very well. Mm. So sorry if that's too much nuance. Mm. So that that study, because um, I I recently have been looking all through these studies for um, a student who was really interested in it. Um, so that that study you've just referenced there, um, it was it looks at joint laxity during pregnancy and the correlation not between laxity itself but between uneven laxity and an increase in pelvic yeah. pain. Mm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So I guess what we're saying that it, well, again, I don't want to go down a a, a rabbit hole. Um, yeah, so what would you conclude from what, we, what would, would I conclude, conclude from, from that? that? What would I conclude from that is that uh, the whole notion of pelvic instability has basically no support in the literature, um, and that you know what I said right at the end there about the asymmetry of pelvic laxity—that's not people who are more lax than the average. Right. Mm. So I think did you I just want to yeah I just want to get a bit clearer on that so we're not leaving that feeling a bit like wait a second what Yeah and you know I would love to leave people feeling super clear but I also think it's important that we acknowledge you know when there are things that are a little bit uh, awkward um to explain So Totally and I mean we could link that study yeah. in as well to um, the show notes Yeah and so basically you know the way I I would you know encourage people to interpret that is uh that you know, pelvic instability is not a thing. Um, relaxin, you know, is a real thing. It does make joints relax. Your, your flexibility does increase during pregnancy, but that's not associated with increased pain. It's not in, associated with any kind of injury or damage. It's a completely normal physiological part of pregnancy. Uh, and yes, people have increased rates of pain during pregnancy as well. But most of that is probably uh, better explained by, like the biggest risk factor for pain in pregnancy is not anything to do with the sacroiliac joint. It's a previous history of pain. That is the mm. biggest risk factor. So if you, if, if you're, you know, if you're, if you have a pregnant lady in your class who has no particular pain, 
just do splits up the yin yang. Don't worry about it. Like go for, go for gold. You know, do adductor work, do splits, do although well, don't do them standing on a reformer because there's a risk of falling. But uh, you know, do them in some situation where there's no risk of falling. Like do legs in straps on your side or whatever. Um, or do a, a straddle stretch, you know, all of that's perfectly fine and safe. And if you have a woman who's doing those things and who gets pain when doing them, well, just reduce the range of motion until she doesn't get paid and then keep going. You know, like don't, don't, don't sort of overthink it. Just kind of, if, if you had someone in your class that had a sore back, you know, if I said, oh, well, this exercise hurts my back when I bend all the way and touch the ground, what would you say? Well, don't go so far. You know, it's like, it's just the same. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the time and realizing we're almost out of time and the, there's another big elephant that we haven't blown to smithereens yet. I don't know if that's not a nice thing to say about elephants, is it? Um, abdominal strengthening, prenatal and postpartum. We don't have time, do we? Do oh, we yeah. have time? Well, we've got, we've got a couple of minutes, five minutes. We've got a couple of minutes, okay. And let's go. So super common for both teachers, instructors, and clients to think that that doing abdominal strengthening exercises whilst they are pregnant yeah. will is a contraindicated and b might in some respect increase their chances for abdominal se- separation postpartum. Yeah, both not supported by science. So okay. um, just like I'm sorry, that is just 100 percent wrong. So. Uh, Did you all hear that, everyone, one more time? It is 100% wrong. Take it out of your prenatal courses now. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, like there, there's, 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 there's a fair bit of research on uh, abdominal separation. Uh, a few quick facts about abdominal separation. Um, at 36 weeks of gestation, so basically full term, uh, it's reported that 100% of women have abdominal separation. Um, so it is not a sort of special consideration. It's it's just a completely normal part of being pregnant at full term. Um, and for about two thirds of women, it, it resolves all by itself within 12 months postpartum. Um, and so, you know, basically no action required. Uh, and so if you're within 12 months postpartum and you've got an abdominal separation, don't worry, it's probably going to go away, you know, two-thirds chance, two-thirds of women, it does go away. If you're more than 12 months postpartum it, and it's you've still got a separation, it's probably not going to go away. Um, uh, and the research, what the research has shown in terms of exercise is that um, women who exercise during pregnancy and before pregnancy and postpartum, um, and particularly women who do abdominal strengthening, have lower rate, uh, so have have a smaller uh, diastasis. So, you know, everyone still gets diastasis, but women who exercise and particularly women who do abdominal strengthening tend to have narrower diastasis, you know, less less width, uh, and it tends to resolve more quickly in women uh, who have exercised. Now, those those studies are mostly observational, so there's the, the interventional studies are not that great quality in this uh, realm. And so, you know, probably, you know, watch this space because better evidence is going to, you know, surface over the next few years. Um, but basically, uh, there are a whole bunch of studies that have found that exercise uh, and particularly abdominal strengthening, including abdominal curls, either has no effect on diastasis or makes it better. You know, and when I say makes it better, I don't mean completely fixes it. I mean, like, you know, reduces the size and or reduces the time to resolve. So that's, okay. Yeah. 
So, so, okay, cool. So, postpartum. I'm told by my Pilates instructor that I need to do transversus abdominis strengthening exercises to help close my diastasis rectus, to help close my abdominal separation. What? Are, what any truth there? Uh, well, I would say there's a grain. Um, so just really quickly, the, the actual biomechanics of what happens when you contract your transversus abdominis, which is the deepest layer of abdominals, is that it widens your diastasis. So the transverse abdominis, the fibers run horizontally from the aponeurosis of the rectus abdominis, which is the bit that stretches in uh, mm-hmm. Uh, diastasis recti, uh, recti abdominis, uh, and they run around to the back to the th- uh, thoracolumbar fascia, which um, inserts into the spine, basically. Uh, and so at the front, the fibers run horizontally, so they run sideways from the aponeurosis, from that center line of the rectus abdominis, you know, the the, the line down the middle between your six-pack. That's the mm-hmm. abdominal aponeurosis. That's what stretches in abdominal separation. It doesn't break, so it's still intact. It just stretches. And mm-hmm. when you contract your transverse abdominis, it literally pulls that directly apart. That is the precise mm-hmm. action of transverse abdominis. It pulls the aponeurosis of the rectus abdominis laterally. And so Mm. it is well documented from a large number of studies using ultrasound measurement that when during an exercise, when somebody contracts their transversus abdominis, and I'm talking about only during the exercise, it widens the diastasis. And when you contract your rectus abdominis, you know, the six-pack muscle, during the exercise only, again, this is by ultrasound measurement, it narrows the diastasis. So this is the exact opposite of what most people kind of understand. But if you truly understand the anatomy, it's pretty self-evident that that's the line of pull of those muscles. The rectus abdominis mm-hmm. pulls vertically, the transverse abdominis pulls horizontally. So um, now that's only momentarily during the actual moment of action of the muscle. Um, so this hasn't been shown to be the case that if you use your transversus repeatedly, it makes it wider, and if you use your rectus repeatedly, it makes it narrower. What mm-hmm. they've actually found in intervention studies is that basically they've done a whole range of abdominal strengthening where they've done like, you know, lying on your back doing leg raises. I've done abdominal, like transverse abdominus contractions. I've done bird dogs. I've done planks. I've done curl ups. I've done all kinds of different things. Mm-hmm. And they all show improvement. Like basically right. any version of abdominal strengthening with or without abdominal crunches, with or without abdominal hollowing, you know, transverse mm-hmm. activation seems to be beneficial uh, for diastasis. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, we could go into more detail, but we don't probably have time. But just just so those out there that, you know, are worried that they're going to hurt their client with abdominal separation or make it worse, There's there doesn't seem to be a correlate from what I know from the studies. There doesn't seem to be a correlation between your abdominal separation and pelvic floor issues or pelvic organ prolapse or pain. But what studies do show is a correlation between women who have abdominal separation and body image issues. Yeah. Okay, so if we are focusing in on our client and obsessing over their abdominal separation, et cetera, do we think that's going to help them? I would say 
no, you know, <laughs> like, and, and down the track, I mean, what, what I know of, you know, ab- abdominal separation is that we're not going to make it worse, right? No. Then we maybe, maybe we help make it slightly better with exercise. Maybe we don't, maybe it's just natural history and, and what, you know, happens, happens. Do you know what I mean? Regardless of whether they do abdominal strengthening or not. Um, but down the, the, the track, you know, after the 12th month period, if it is something that's really bothering your client, you know, I've seen people sell clients apps to, you know, saying it's going to, going to, you know, close in their abdominal separation with all these nah. hollowing exercises. And this is, they're selling these to these clients post the 12 month mark. Nah, to at, me, at that, that point, is, that's, yeah. surgery's that's, your only option. That's not okay. Yeah. Surgery, surgery's your only option, yep. right? So, so you would be referring your client on to their women's health specialist, yes. their doctor, etc. Yes. You would not be selling them your transverse abdominus activation app. Right. No. Or even, That's not or okay. Even, or even, you know, like basically for someone with diastasis, you know, what should you do? Well, I would say basically don't focus on it. Just strengthen Correct. them up. Give them a general strengthening program, including abdominals, but not, you know, focusing on abdominals. Just do normal Pilates, you know, just do normal Pilates. And uh, if they're worried, reassure them. It's perfectly safe. It's perfectly fine. Um and, you know, don't, don't, you know, helicopter over them uh, and don't constantly, you know, like make them hypervigilant about it by, by obsessing, you know, and saying, how's your, how's your diastasis? Is this okay on your diastasis? Oh, you do it gently. You know, like just, yeah. just treat them like a normal person. If they express mm-hmm. concern to you, you know, outside of class time, reassure them, you know, mm-hmm. and, 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 you know. Reassure them it's perfectly safe. Ask them how they felt after the class, you know, when they worked their abdominals. And chances are they felt great, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just, it, it's perfectly fine and safe. It's not a panacea. It's not a silver bullet. You're probably not going to fix them, although you might help a little bit and contribute to them, mm-hmm. you know, improving a bit. But you're certain they get all those other benefits of exercise. You know, they get stronger mm-hmm. and better mental health mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. you know, feel better about themselves and mm-hmm. all of that stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think that's what a what a great episode, Ralph. Yeah. We didn't even get to talk about pelvic floor or any We haven't even gosh, we haven't done pelvic floor or any of that wow, we didn't even go there with pelvic floor, did we? Well that can be another episode. I think think we're gonna have to do another another episode. Wow. What a big what a big topic. So we'd love to, you know, we'd love to hear after you guys have listened to this, if there's some new information here, we'd love to hear from you. So mm. reach out to us and uh, let us know. Good talk, Chloe. Yeah, thanks, Ralph. See ya. Yeah. After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. 
This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means you keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in uh, link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.